welcome to the History and Philosophy of Physics podcast. I'm Tegan Phillips, and this is episode 8, To Infinity and Absurdity. This episode, I'll be talking about Zeno of Elea, one of the students of Parmenides and the philosopher often credited with developing the argument form of reductio ad absurdum, or reduction to absurdity. Zeno is best known for his paradoxes of motion, especially the paradox of Achilles and the tortoise. Because his paradoxes aim to prove Parmenides' famous conclusions, that reality consists of only one thing and that motion is impossible, it is thought that Zeno wrote his paradoxes to defend Parmenides and support his theories. In particular, Zeno might have been addressing criticisms from Pythagoreans, whose theories directly opposed those of the Eleatics. I discussed Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans a few episodes ago. They believed that the study of mathematics would purify the soul and make it more godlike. They also applied mathematics to the natural world and believed that reality consisted of numerous things and that motion was possible. Crazy stuff if you ask Parmenides or Zeno. Zeno was born around the year 490 BCE and lived sometime into the mid to late 5th century. The dates of his lifetime are really vague because there is very little information. His birth is dated based on Plato's dialogue, Parmenides. According to Plato, Parmenides and Zeno visited Athens to attend the Great Panathenaia, a religious festival primarily honoring the patron of Athens, the goddess Athena. While Parmenides and Zeno were in Athens, Zeno presented some of his paradoxes to an audience that included a young Socrates. Socrates was supposedly around the age of 20, while Parmenides was about 65 and Zeno was almost 40. Since it's recorded that Socrates was a little over 70 when he was executed in the year 399 BCE, his birth can be backdated and his age compared to those of Zeno and Parmenides in Plato's dialogue, which would give a very approximate date of birth for Zeno of 490 BCE. Like Parmenides, Zeno lived in Elea, a city in Magna Graecia on the southwest coast of what is now Italy. Zeno probably spent most of his life in Elea and was presumably a student of Parmenides. Texts from Plato, the dialogue Parmenides that I just mentioned, as well as the later philosopher Plutarch, suggests that Zeno visited Athens, which would become, relatively soon afterwards, one of the centers of philosophy in ancient Greece. Plato's Parmenides describes Zeno reading from a famous book he brought to Athens, which contained arguments intending to show that Parmenides was right, and everything is one, in contrast to common sense, which makes us think that there are many different things that make up our reality. Most details about this book are unknown, and it is long lost, or maybe even a fictional invention of Plato, a tool to present his ideas. Although, in the 5th century CE, the Neoplatonist philosopher Proclus wrote a commentary on Plato's Parmenides, in which Proclus mentioned that he knew of a work attributed to Zeno that contained 40 arguments, a work that was also available to and known by earlier commentators. This work was probably not Zeno's original book, 
if he even wrote one, but it was likely based on Zeno's original presentation of his arguments, and may have reworked or built upon them. Even the Zenonian arguments presented by Aristotle in his work Physics are believed to be reconstructions and possibly new ways of presenting Zeno's paradoxes. So, we don't really have Zeno's arguments or paradoxes as he himself wrote them, but we do have some reworkings that have allowed scholars to reconstruct them along the lines of how Zeno might have presented them. Plato's description leads us to believe that Zeno's goal was to prove the falsity of our common-sense idea that there are many things, and he did so by means of contradictions. Zeno would argue that if we start with a certain seemingly reasonable assumption, like the world consists of many kinds of things, and then take some logical steps, we'll arrive at ridiculous and contradictory conclusions, like these things both have and don't have a certain trait, which is impossible. Therefore, the initial assumption that the world consists of many kinds of things must be false, even if it's something we naturally think is true, because rejecting it is the only way to avoid the contradictions. This makes more sense with examples, so let's go through some of Zeno's famous ones. I've been talking so far mainly about arguments against plurality, the notion that reality consists of many things, rather than only one thing, so I'll start here. There are two Zenonian arguments against plurality, the antinomy of limited and unlimited, and the antinomy of large and small. An antinomy is just another word for a paradox or a contradiction between two beliefs. The antinomy of limited and unlimited comes to us via another commentary, this one on Aristotle's physics, by another Neoplatonist philosopher, Simplicius, in the 6th century CE. Despite being written almost a thousand years after Zeno lived, it's thought that Simplicius quoted Zeno word for word and preserved the entire argument. This argument aims to show that there cannot be many things, because, if there are, you end up with the paradoxical result that these things are both limited and unlimited. The argument is, if there are many things, it is necessary that they be just so many as they are, and neither greater than themselves, nor fewer. But if they are just as many as they are, they will be limited. If there are many things, the things that are, are unlimited. For there are always others between these entities, and again, others between those. The first part of this argument shows that there is a limit to these many things, that they are finite. Basically, if there are many things, they must be of a certain number, like how there are different elements and a finite number of different atoms. We may not know what that number is, but we do know that it is finite that there is a limit to the number of elements or the number of atoms that make up our world. In case you're curious, there are currently 118 confirmed elements, and it's estimated there are about 10 to the power of 80 atoms in the observable universe. That's 1,000 quadrillion vigintillion atoms. If reality consists of many things instead of just one, there must be a certain number of these different things. Since there is a certain number of them, these many things are limited. 
The limit may be a very large number, but it's still a limit. The second part of this argument shows that these many things are unlimited. It relies on the assumption that two things are distinct or separate only if there is something between them. For example, the two earpieces of a set of headphones are distinct when there is air or a person's head in between them. If the headphones were to be melted so that the earpieces fuse together, those earpieces would no longer be distinct. Instead, they would be one melted and probably non-functioning earpiece. If we take this idea and apply it to the more general concept of there being many things, there must be something in between any two of these many things, because otherwise they'd be the same thing. So, if we have two things, there must be a third to separate them. But then, there must be something to separate the second and third thing, and then something to separate this fourth thing from the third, and so on. This can go on an infinite number of times, revealing infinitely many things between any two distinct things. Therefore, if there are many things, there is an unlimited number of many things. But the first part of the argument established that there was a limit to the many things. Since it's impossible for something to be both limited and unlimited, we have a paradox, and the logical conclusion is that our first assumption, that there are many things, is false. So there must be only one kind of thing. Zeno's other argument against plurality is known as the antinomy of large and small. I won't really go through it because Zeno's paradoxes of motion are more interesting from a physics perspective, so I want to spend more time on them. But I will say a few things about this antinomy first. Our knowledge of it also comes from Simplicius and the commentary he wrote on Aristotle's physics in the 6th century CE. Simplicius doesn't record the entire argument. He quotes parts of it and then describes or merely alludes to other parts. It seems that the antinomy aimed to prove that if there are many things, then each of these many things must be both infinitely large, have unlimited magnitude, and infinitely small, have no magnitude. Once again, this ridiculous conclusion is meant to show us the folly of our assumption that the world is made up of many different things, and instead to take up monism and believe in the oneness of all things. Now, let's move on, or perhaps stay where we are, to examine Zeno's most famous arguments, the paradoxes of motion. In his book Physics, Aristotle presents four of Zeno's paradoxes of motion. Aristotle doesn't quote Zeno directly, and instead he paraphrases Zeno's arguments before giving his responses. The first of these paradoxes mentioned by Aristotle is commonly called the stadium or the race course. It is also known as the dichotomy, a dichotomy being a division or contrast between two completely different things. This argument is pretty straightforward. Suppose someone wants to cross a stadium or a race course in a certain amount of time. Maybe they want to beat the world record for the 100-meter dash, which is about 10 seconds. So, someone wants to cover a certain distance, 100 meters, within a limited amount of time, about 10 seconds. 
In order to reach the distance of 100 meters, someone has to first reach the halfway point of 50 meters. Otherwise, they're obviously cheating and not running the full distance. To cross 50 meters, the runner also has to reach the halfway point of 25 meters. But a distance of 25 meters is also divisible in two, and so is every smaller division of distance, so the argument goes. You can infinitely divide this finite distance of 100 meters, which means there is an infinite number of halfway points to reach before someone can run the full 100 meters. But it's impossible to travel through an infinite number of points in a finite amount of time like 10 seconds. Thus, it's impossible for someone to run 100 meters, or cross an entire stadium, or even just move from one place to another in any finite amount of time. This argument relies on the principle that distance is infinitely divisible, a principle that some physicists disagree with. In the mid-20th century, Werner Heisenberg realized that if space was quantized, if it had a minimal, indivisible, smallest possible length scale, then certain calculations in quantum field theory became a lot more reasonable. Before, there were infinities all over the place, and it wasn't working super well. Everyone prefers to have a reasonable theory to describe our universe, so this idea of quantized space seemed great, and had the added benefit of solving Zeno's paradox. If you don't have infinitely divisible space, you don't have an infinite number of halfway points to cross before you can get anywhere. Physicists even found a very small length scale, dubbed the Planck length, of 10 to the negative 35 meters, much, much smaller than even the nucleus of an atom. Any distances smaller than the Planck length seem to be physically impossible. Now, quantized space is all well and good until you bring the theory of relativity into the mix again. You see, relativity has a phenomenon called length contraction. Distances can shorten or contract depending on how fast you are moving relative to what you are measuring. So, if you lay down a meter stick and then shoot past it really quickly in a rocket, the meter stick would appear to be less than a meter long. How much shorter it is depends on how fast you go. Once you get out of your rocket and wander over to pick up your meter stick again, you would find it is the same length as when you first laid it down. One meter. Presumably, there aren't any mischievous elves hanging around who replaced your meter stick with a shorter one while you flew in the rocket and put the meter stick back once you landed. It's just the funhouse rules of relativity theory. If this is applied to quantized space, then the fundamental absolute minimum can't get shorter than this length scale would get shorter depending on how fast someone is moving relative to the length they're measuring. There's no definite answer yet as to whether space is quantized or if it is infinitely divisible, but physicists are working on it. Getting back to Zeno, there are a few more paradoxes of motion to discuss. The Achilles is a famous paradox featuring the great Greek warrior. Strong and heroic Achilles is in a hotly anticipated race against the slowest runner he could find whom Simplicius names as the tortoise. So, 
Achilles versus a tortoise. Who will win? Let's find out. To be a good sport, Achilles gives the tortoise a head start. After a while, Achilles begins to run after the tortoise. Achilles will reach the point where the tortoise was when he started running, but in the meantime, the tortoise will have moved a certain distance ahead. Achilles will then run forward to this point, but in the same amount of time, the tortoise will have plodded along a little further ahead. So long as the tortoise continues moving, it will never be overtaken by the mighty Greek hero because poor Achilles must always reach the points the tortoise has already passed. This means that the tortoise must always stay ahead of Achilles, even though anyone watching the race would swear that Achilles passes the tortoise. So Zeno would say that evidently there's something wrong with the concept of motion, and what we perceive can't be right. Zeno's third paradox of motion is the arrow. Spoiler alert! He concludes that the moving arrow is, in fact, motionless. Alright, so an arrow is a physical object that takes up a certain amount of space. While it is in flight, at each moment it takes up space equal to its length. It's flying through the air, but it stays whole. Supposedly, to occupy a position in space equal to its length, or, as Aristotle puts it, to be against what is equal, is the same thing as to be at rest. It follows that the arrow is always at rest, even during flight. So, it's not really moving at all. Although, if you see an arrow flying towards you, I would recommend getting out of the way if you can, illusion or not. The fourth paradox is known as the moving rose, or the stadium not to be confused with the first paradox of motion I mentioned, which is also sometimes called the stadium. For this particular paradox, a visual helps, so I'll include an image on this episode's post on the podcast website and social media pages. Suppose there are three train cars on parallel tracks, labeled A, B, and C. The cars are all the same length, and each has four windows on either side. These windows are evenly spaced and effectively divide the train cars into four equal sections. Train car A is stationary on the first track. Train car B is on the second track, starting just to the left of train car A and moving to the right. And train car C is on the third track, starting just to the right of train car A and moving to the left. From their starting points, train cars B and C will move until all three train cars are lined up next to each other on the tracks. If cars B and C start with their front halves next to car A, so that the front of each car has passed two of car A's four windows, then the fronts of cars B and C only have to pass the last two of A's windows in order to line up perfectly next to it. Now, if we look at how train cars B and C move relative to each other, They don't overlap at all at the start, so the front of each car has to pass all four windows of the other car in order to line up fully next to it. If each window represents a unit of distance, then something, like the front end of train car B, must move exactly two and exactly four units of distance, 
over the same amount of time. It moves 2 to line up with train car A and 4 to line up with train car C. But this would mean that a distance of 2 is the same as a distance of 4, or that a certain distance is equivalent to half of said distance, which is obviously impossible. Aristotle points out that this argument is based on the false assumption that it takes the same amount of time to move past a resting object as it does to move past an identical but moving object. Once you realize and correct this, the paradox is resolved. It has been suggested that Aristotle may have restructured this argument to better favor his objection. Unlike some of the other Zenonian paradoxes, there isn't much stronger evidence than Aristotle's presentation, so it's unclear if this is how Zeno intended it, or if he recognized the false assumption and had a more clever version that is not so easy to resolve. Zeno's arguments quickly became popular and would have been the subject of much debate during the latter years of Zeno's life and the centuries after it. While his original writings and undoubtedly some of his arguments have been lost, these paradoxes prompted Greek philosophers to develop proper physical theories and consider the realities of motion and space and their principles beyond our ordinary intuition. Interestingly, there is a phenomenon in quantum physics named after Zeno of Elea, the quantum Zeno effect. It's a curious feature of quantum mechanical systems, whereby the system, say, a particle, is prevented from evolving or decaying as it normally would by being frequently observed and kept in its known initial state. It is the watch pot that literally never boils, or the runner who can never leave the starting line. Next episode, I'll be discussing Democritus and Leucippus. They disagreed with Zeno's principle that space, or any physical body, like the ground of a stadium, is infinitely divisible. Instead, they presented a new and influential physical theory, atomism. Until then, you can check out the website for the podcast at historyandphilosophyofphysicspodcast.ca. If you have any comments or feedback, you can send me an email at histphilphizpod at gmail.com or leave a comment or message on Facebook or Twitter. Just search at histphilphizpod to find the podcast page. I also want to take a moment and thank those of you who have reached out and provided some feedback. It's been very positive, and it really makes my day to hear that you are enjoying the podcast so far. So thanks again. Until the next episode, I hope you all take care and stay safe.